Hello, everybody. Welcome back to our low effort, low quality podcast. This is Elizabeth Brunig. This is my husband, Matt. Hi, everyone. I'm really glad the jackhammering outside the, the window has ended. Yes, there was a gas leak, or maybe Some there was. Some kind of gas disaster out there. Perhaps. Oh no, they're starting up again. It sounds like they got a some kind of instrument or tool out there. They've been banging on the street. Washington Gas. I'm not sure uh, if that's a public utility or what. Um, but if it's not, it should be. Am I right? Seems like it. I mean, it's sort of strange to be able to drill into the street if you're a private company. Yeah, it's public utility. There we go. Fam, it is 10 o'clock at night when they started that up. Well, yeah, I think earlier than that, actually. Yeah, was 10 was when it came to my attention. Uh, it is the day after Halloween. Halloween is canceled. Hello. It's Halloween. That's a song our daughter likes to listen to on the on the children's YouTube. Yep. Uh, I don't remember the channel. Yeah, they, they've all kind of run together. There's a lot of content on there, man. Yeah, they have these like, 53-minute videos or whatever. Just compilations of these weird, demented cartoons and, like, songs with, like, two words in them. I I think Hello, It's Halloween has three words. Yeah, well, you know, Halloween is only one, you know, you know, maybe you can get a couple weeks out of it. It's not worth the investment to go too too deep into Halloween. Yeah, but for kids, it's like, Halloween is, like, their biggest calendar holiday. I know, but you got to think about streams. <laughs> How many streams can you get? You can get two weeks, three weeks of streams, maybe, max. That's not worth it. We watched The Great Pumpkin a lot. She enunciates that very well. Great Pumpkin. That's true. Yeah, she does like that. Every time she, every time we flip over to Amazon uh, Prime Video, that was always sitting there as recently watched. And so she'd see the image and demand to, to watch it. She's now confusing panda bears with Snoopy. That's one consequence of watching The Great Pumpkin a lot. Similar. Similar. Yeah, whatever. I don't care. Panda bears are kind of canceled, honestly. I'm not into them. Not the way a lot of people are. I like the red ones. Yeah, exactly. The red ones are totally superior to the black and white ones. You can hold them. Theoretically. You could have them as a pet, perhaps. They seem spunky, and they have a lot of attitude. You know, I like that about the red ones. Yeah, they get on two legs and kind of, you know, raise their arms. <laughs> You know, <laughs> that's also what I like about and people. Say, Come at me, bro. Like that. <laughs> yeah, thing. yeah, they're very memeable. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Halloween was good. Jane was Tinkerbell. Yeah. She went around and would go to a f she's very shy, but she would go to doors and say, happy Halloween night. That's all she would say. Tick or teak. Happy Halloween night. Yes, it All was right. important to emphasize that. And then there were certain houses she was just like, no thanks. You know? She didn't like the look of them, too yuppie or whatever. They had a resist sign in the yard. She wasn't into it. Yeah, they had one of those signs that say, I believe in science. <laughs> yeah, there is a, there's absolutely one of those signs in a house I won't mention, but I know exactly where it is. It's there's close a to lot us. of them. There's this one sign that has like eight or nine slogans on it. <laughs> yes, I remember that that like ten, 10 houses seems to have but i don't even know where i mean i guess they see their neighbor and they go that's a cool ass sign and then i like, also believe in science and then they google it to try to figure out where to get their own no i just imagine at the tacoma park uh home depot 
around April or May, you know, whenever people are getting out in the yard, they just, they, you know, stock up on a bunch of these signs on Zazzle and just mark them up. And it's like, I believe in science. Yeah, they say that. They say all are welcome here. All are welcome here. Like in your house? This is clearly untrue. (laughs) Um, Poor people? Yeah. Yeah. Here, here, uh, very, very um, uh, expansive definition of where here is uh, from uh, certain DC homeowners, as far as I can tell. So all are welcome somewhere around here. Yeah, here across the river, if you you would. If you don't mind. Anyway, Jane put the big skipola on those houses, I guess. She didn't like the pumpkins that said vote. <laughs> I didn't see <laughs> there, that. There were That's several. so there depressing. Were, there were at least oh. four pumpkins that said vote. Oh, that is scary. That's super. It just freaked her out. It's terrifying. You know what really grinds my gears about the vote thing? I just got to put this on the table, and I might be in the wrong here, so I'm going to volunteer that. I hate that uh, around election day, everybody's like, get out and vote, 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 vote. But they don't say like four well, that's their effort to seem, you know, like, oh, this, I'm just a vote person. But but if, if you're going to vote for a reactionary, I would actually actively rather you did not vote. I don't want to yeah. encourage you to vote. Yeah, that's true. So I, I want to discourage that, in fact. But so it's a way to be politically involved. I'm not in generally a, in favor of voting. In a non-controversial way. So, like, if you're a celebrity and yeah. it's like, oh... The election, I can just tell people to vote and then everyone's fine with that. Yeah, you know? it's fair. It's it's weirdly neutral. It's like, hey, get out there and breathe. <laughs> it's like, what the hell? I should say, I guess, now that we're on the topic of voting, I did vote. It was actually quite easy um, at the local library. Who'd you vote for? Uh, so importantly, I suppose, mm-hmm. I voted for Alyssa Silverstein. Who supports paid leave. Yes, she's the head paid leave person. Mm-hmm. I have read in the press and in consultations with various um, uh, DC politics watchers. I am not a. I don't ter- I don't pay that much attention to it on a day to day. I approach DC politics like normal people right. approach politics. You know, a few weeks before the election, I kind of try to read some things and figure out what to do. And anyways, what I have found is that. Uh, Alyssa Silverstein loves the paid leave, supports the paid leave, mm. also uh, minimum wage, you there know, for tip workers and that sort of thing. And that is quite bizarrely, the <laughs> apparently the sitting mayor is trying to unseat her because of her pro paid leave positions mm. and has spent a lot of money on this uh, candidate named uh, Breeder. Um, Matt, you can't just call people that because they have kids, dude. I think that's what no, it is. Oh, that's very offensive. Uh, no, maybe it's reader. Yeah, Matt, just calling um, people breeders on the oh podcast. Oh, yeah, it's reader. Okay. Sorry. I, I Like I said, I don't pay attention to this. Um, but Dion Reader uh, is going around saying that she runs a business and she cannot handle paid leave. And so she knows that paid leave is no good. And that sort of stuff, um, which is completely insufferable. And also it's like, all right, so you tell me you don't know how to run a business. Yeah. I don't, I, I mean, on some levels, I appreciate that. Sounds like it's time to shrink those profit margins, sweet hey. The paid leave taxes in D.C. that's being proposed is 0.62%. That's going to kill Diane. Jesus Christ, Diane, you're really running that business thin. <laughs> She'll be walking around in a big barrel. 
I'm not <laughs> with sure. With no clothes. If you're only re- if you, if you go negative over 0.62%, perhaps that's not a business worth running. Um but anyway, she's doing that stuff. So I would say at least go out and vote for Alyssa Silverstein to protect yeah. her from this ridiculous thing. Yeah. I, I I came to uh, uh, awareness of this issue in large part because Uh-oh. of uh, 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 the editorial board's position at uh, the Washington Post dot com, which uh, it was against Alyssa Silverstein. Shit, am I saying Silverstein? It's Alyssa Silverman. Good job, asshole. Like I said, I don't do this. Alyssa Silverman, if you're in D.C., we probably have a disproportionate number of D.C. listeners. Supports paid leave. Don't support Dion Reader. Don't support the breeder. Don't do that. Um, At least you managed to get both of their names wrong. You know, I do what I can. There's signs everywhere, but I don't pay attention to them. It's also late because our kid's in bed. We had to wait till the kid went to sleep. Yeah, it's almost midnight. So I'm, yeah. I'm. Um, what do you call it? You're um, like sundowning. Sundowning. <laughs> yeah, that definitely, I'm not sure if that's a negative. That definitely happens to you. Thing, but there's actually like an hour period every night where Matt's not asleep, but he's nonverbal. Yeah, that's true. Everyone. That's um, absolutely not true of everyone. I'm capable of carrying on a conversation until like maybe the five minutes before I'm unconscious. It's true of but everyone. Matt lays on the couch and just kind of vaguely looks around or watches TV. And for all intents and purposes, he seems awake. But if I try to talk to him about anything, he just kind of nods at me and can't verbalize. And he's he's like, I'm just too tired. I, I, I just don't have any more words. Yeah, that's normal. That's not normal. <laughs> that's very weird. That's normal. Everyone anyway, I've ever known does that. No, you yeah, what? You've known two people. Okay, so let's uh let's get out there and vote for Alyssa Silverman. Alyssa uh, Silverman. Vote for paid leave, vote for moms, vote for families. Don't vote for this hack who's being propped up by capital. Dion Reader, yeah. who's endorsed by the Washington Post editorial okay, board. I'm not on the ed board, by the way. <laughs> Matt keeps bringing this up. I'm I don't even know who runs it, but it's, it was a bizarre endorsement that is literally premised on how she doesn't like paid leave. Whatever. The official position of the Washington Post editorial board is that DC paid leave is bad. So I, I'm it's, not on the it's ed completely board. bizarre to me what's anyway, going on. But. Anyway, anyway, uh, in other hot topics, uh, so Bolsonaro won in Brazil, and that's uh, and then of course there was the horrific uh, shooting at uh, Tree of Life in Spring Hill, and that's uh, sparked big discussions of fascism in the United States again. And I want to make a point about this, okay? Because a lot of the defenses of American politicians like King and Trump and so on, who are you know sort of pseudo fascist or have fascist tendencies, the defenses are, how could they think this, such as capital is good? but also be fascist when fascists think capital is bad or, or the efforts to defend them usually take the shape of trying to present a conf, uh, you know, a contradiction like fascism would hold X, but these guys hold Y. All right. Fascism is very fruity guys. It is very, very, very dreamy. It's uh, associative. I would say it's uh, not a firm political ideology. A lot of, uh, you know, or, or a slew of different authoritarian regimes can be fascist and moreover, you don't have to be in political power to be a fascist. Fascism was born in uh, people who were not in political power. It's, a, it's an ideology or a psychology. I refer to it as a mood that really emerges in, uh, you know, mainly in factions that are not uh, immediately in power. 
Uh, and so fascists can take governmental control. That does happen. You still see it happening. You saw it happen in the 20th century. Uh, but I would not associate it so strongly with the formal uh, shape of government as with the kind of, yeah, dreamy uh, style of thought and associations uh, that it, you know, expresses itself in art, culture, theory, and writing. Um, and, you know, that's just a point that I wanted to put on the table. People are like, how can you be a fascist if you're incoherent? Fascism's incoherent, guys. It's uh, it's got a lot of oppositional stuff going on in it. And and again, this is this is partially um, something that fascism would claim to its credit. It's the Nietzschean strain that says, I'm free to contradict myself and hold contradictory ideas because I'm above your bullshit logic. I can do that if I want to. And fascism does a lot of that. Fascism, in a lot of cases, is hyper-futuristic, is very scientific, is interested in rigid order and organization and hyper-modernism. And at the same time, you get a bunch of Teutonic, mystical, ancient, root-searching, spiritual, occultist shit out of fascism as well. And the answer is like, yeah, I can do both. I can have both. I don't have to have a logical line here. Why not both? Like the meme. Exactly. It's like it's the original why not both meme. In fact, I'm pretty and, sure uh, that's... I contain multitudes. It's the that Whitman. Would be another one. Yeah. And then I have one more. Okay. If you can't handle me at my worst, well, you don't deserve me at my best. I don't know if that... That's a fascist slogan. I don't think that is... Uh, I probably wouldn't um, associate that so strongly. Uh, think about it, though. Well... Uh, I haven't. Uh, so, I, but you know, but I think that the point is... Um, you know, it's definitely possible to examine someone's, uh, you know, ideology or style of thinking and say like, you know, this is more or less fascist or this doesn't have anything in common with what you see out of typical fascism. But, uh, but, but the, the, the type of argument I've been pretty unconvinced by is, uh, but this would require some contradictory thoughts. Fascism actually contains a lot of contradictory shit. That's pretty typical. So what you got to do here, first, you got to establish criteria. Fascism is... A, B, C, and then you apply it and you say, is this A, B, and C? Well, I just think it's a style. You know, there's there's a heavy apocalypticism. So the A is, is a style that consists of these components. And 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 so right and you know, and, a, and and not only not only aesthetic fixations but a style of thinking. So a, a super a- apocalyptic approach, for example, uh, can be indicative of fascism, even if the apocalypse has different faces. Um, and maybe some things are fascistic, but uh, not yeah, fully I would, fascist. I would grant you that. Or, in you that know, sense, whatever fully fascist might mean. Sharing elements with uh, fascism. That works know. too. I think that's an appropriate way to do, to, get that out. I'm just thinking to use about language it. from uh, time to time. Might delete, feeling cute, might delete later. Uh, but that was just something that I wanted to put out there and I might write about, but I might not. Who knows? You know, I got a lot of stuff on my plate. Is President Cheeto a fascist? What? President Cheeto. Oh, are you referring, you're referring to Trump. I only call him President Cheeto. No, I don't think I've ever heard you say that before. He's orange complected. Oh, he's got a fake tan. AKA President Cheeto. I know a lot of people with fake tans. Why I don't do that. That's why I, everyone comments everywhere mm-hmm. I go on how and pale I am. And so you, you know, there are, Say Secretary Cheeto, depending on what their job is. That's how it works. Local mom Cheeto. Stay at home mom Cheeto. That's what I would call him. <laughs> really savage, but I guess you got to live by your principles. I'd say it's not a pejorative. It's just, you know, 
It's the word we use for orange now. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, I'm uh, okay. So, uh, you know, Trump, I would not say, you know, I, you know, I would say that he has a lot of, uh, there are a lot of elements that he draws on there. Yeah. There you have it. But there, you know, but he, you know, he is very much an individualist. He's pretty uninterested in the whole and the community. Those are typically the corporate, uh, something you don't see, you know, something, you know, you see out of fascists, you don't see in him and, uh, you know, can be analyzed. Uh, yeah. He doesn't I, imagine himself as the head of a larger body politic. He he doesn't seem to have, you know, I don't know. He he's, sees himself as a, as an actor in the, like, like he still complains about like, I don't know, like the government and the press. It's a very weird thing. Like usually the presidents do kind of take on that tone where they're like, oh, I'm the leader and so on and he's still like i don't know like an outsider no yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. i don't know if that's fascistic or i mean it's not fascistic but uh anyways it's basically just trump and his kids he's not even loyal to the the party or anything he's like the only people i trust are my children i'm not part of a greater organism here uh it's me contra mundi yeah that's true there you go contra mundi is a good is a good way to describe his approach um that means against the world that's what it means athanasius it's sort of like my t-shirt what that says detroit versus everybody you don't have that t-shirt i because for my detroit spirit what my detroit spirit i don't never seen you have that t-shirt detroit versus everybody well it's kind of epic. Makes me feel epic when I wear it. I don't know. I don't know. Okay, so now I know this T-shirt doesn't actually exist. Yeah, it's a way. It gets me inspired about Detroit. You know, they've had a they've had a lot of down times, oh, but been through a lot. Yeah, uh, they're they're getting it together, and you know, it's it's us Detroiters versus everyone. You're not from Detroit. You've never even been to Detroit, to my knowledge. Nonetheless, nonetheless. Uh, hot topics. Uh, what are the topics today? I don't know. What are people doing? What's going on out in the world in this this country of ours? Do you have any? Yeah, I just supplied like five. Oh. Okay, well, so we've we've done the hot topics. Well, then. I mean, I feel like there might be some. <laughs> Let me open up my uh, really simple syndication reader, sometimes known as an RSS reader. Um, let's see. White House concerned Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke okay. violated federal rules. No one gives a shit. Zinke's Montana land deal with oil services firm executive is under scrutiny for possible criminal investigation. Okay. So... That's a big one. No. Um, okay. Well, yeah, you had some stuff to, you know, about climate. Finland. Finland. Uh, well, so here's an interesting thing. Finland, like, they're going through their tax thing. No one cares, dude. They care. It's interesting. No, I don't really think most, you know. It's not about Finland particular, okay. right? But they have this day where, like, all the tax info is released. And you can go see what people made. 
And so there are all these stories in Finnish media that's like, who made the most money last year? And which musician made the most money last year? And stuff like that. That's kind of cool. You don't get to do that in the U.S. You don't get to see who made the most money last year. Um, you know, not in any official way. So that's cool. What if we had that? What if you could go online every year and just see what people made? Okay. It would be interesting. Though I also saw a poll that said that Finns don't really like this. Okay. So, so. <laughs> but they do it anyways. <laughs> it's not a popular. It's not popular, but you know. I think that they should. Um, they just recognize it. Like you know, I don't like doing it, but you got to do it. You got to do it. <laughs> they should have like an and like everyone in the country should be submitted to a hot or not. And they should release the list of the hottest people. Yeah. And then the notest. They could rank them. I want to know who's the hottest person in America. Get some statistics. Yeah, no, a, they poll people on these sorts of things. And they also ask them, you know, do you like paying taxes? <laughs> and 79% said, yeah, I do. Okay. And then they said, is it important to collect taxes? Which is a little separate from paying because it's more on the government's end, I guess. But they're like, do you agree with this statement? Collecting taxes is important because it supports our welfare state. 96% said yes. All right. So okay. there you go. I don't. I would love to run a poll like that in the U.S. I can only imagine. Uh, speaking of uh, snacks, uh, my good friend Emma and I, who you might know as Surfboard on Twitter, uh, we're going to do a special episode rundown of the Star Wars prequels. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm excusing Matt from this. The way to watch Star Wars is you start with prequel one, two, three. <laughs> you want to do it chronologically I, that's so that you understand the whole. Because otherwise you get lost. Oh, I'm backwards in time. You don't want to do that. So as you can see, this is why I'm sparing Matt this episode. Uh, but you'll very much enjoy Emma, who's extremely smart and funny. Uh, and we're going to give you a, a comedy bonus app. Uh, so just hang in there, uh, Patreon subscribers. We're going to do that. And, uh, and we're also going to bring a special guest on. Yeah, we keep teasing guests, but we're, we're lining them up. We, we are got, lining them we're up. We're lining them up. It's a little difficult, you know, because we have a child and whatnot. But yeah, she has to she has to be put to bed or something so that we can. Yeah, <laughs> she has to be fed and bathed interview. And, and put to sleep. And then, you know, it, it's just kind of it can be tough. You know, it's hard out there. People say, Liz, how do you have it all? How do you do it? You have a job. You have a baby. You have a, a Patreon podcast. Smart trip card for the Metro. I don't have that. Yeah. You seem to get a new one every time you use it. Yeah. I lose them a lot. And, uh, and people say, Liz, how do you, uh, how do you do it? And the answer is fam. I don't, I'm in constant trouble at work for not filing on time. Uh, the kid is constantly demanding more of my attention than I actually have to give. The house is a, is a fucking train wreck. It's not clean. Um, and so that's how I have it all is that I just sort of neglect certain things at certain times. And it's, uh, it's very stressful. I have it all. And my trick is don't consume anything. That's sort of my anyway, strategy. Didn't you have a, a spiel about, you know, on climate or something? You've been trolling people about climate change for about three weeks well there now. was a piece today and i and i it struck me you know as an interesting thing to talk about and it was a piece um from a fellow named miles goodrich that's a good name uh 
Miles Are there any Bush. good rich people though? I mean, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Miles Bad Rich. You know, you got to think go. about that. You got to think about it. And it's titled. <coughs> Matt's got the. Matt's got the consumption these days because he doesn't eat anything except sludge anymore. Matt's like, I love my gruel. That's how I save time because, you know, if you did get a drinkable meal, then it's only like 30 seconds. <laughs> Matt swigs down a pouchlet of gruel <laughs> and then he's, he's good hey, to go. don't knock it. Don't knock it. Saves time. Anyways, the piece is called Markets Aren't Enough to Solve Climate Change. True. And it's an unfortunate title because, um, well, I mean, he does express the idea in the piece, but he also seems to be like, okay with markets. And it just says, you can't do it only with markets, but like, who the hell is saying you can only do it with markets? I mentioned in the piece, but I, I don't really know what viewpoints are actually being responded to. Um, but he makes a point that's worth noting which is that it's a kind of confusing um situation where whenever you advocate something like a carbon tax people will be like that's a market thing that's a market thing did you know that's a market thing yeah markets ain't gonna do it and like the real gist here is you basically have a lot of people who are emotionally connected to the term socialism and they're trying to figure out like the socialist solution for everything. Mm -hmm. But like some things just don't really connect to uh, how the means of production ought to be um, administered. Some things are different. Theoretically, the, the means of production could be owned completely by the workers and still fuck up the atmosphere. Oh, badly. hell yeah. The Soviet Union just was a polluting machine back in the day. Uh, you know, I mean, in, in, an environmentalist outlook is very much orthogonal to whether or not uh, the workers control or don't. Like, workers could either be environmentalists or maybe not be environmentalists. In my experience, in the United States, many of them are not environmentalists, um, or particularly fond of, you know, uh, that sort of stuff. Um, so it's a little bit weird. Um, but the problem is that you know, like when you're basically saying we need to restructure our economies so that there's less carbon-based fuels and more renewable fuels, well, we have a market economy. And so like necessarily what that's going to mean is relying on the market in one way or another because we're not actually going to turn into a centrally planned economy, certainly not in time for uh, the uh, fighting of climate change. Mm -hmm. And so you're in this bizarre situation where every policy that's proposed actually does clearly rely heavily on market mechanisms. But there's a socialist contingent that very much wants to say that the thing they do is real socialism and not market stuff. And so there's like a competition among all these various market-based programs to see who can essentially trick socialists into believing that theirs is the one that doesn't involve the market and what's happened i should take a step back there basically are like three big proposals that are kind of 
based on pricing carbon, mm-hmm. right? It's like, oh, well, we want to eliminate carbon emissions, so how do we do it? And there's a lot of stuff you can do, obviously, around, you know, renewable energy and that sort of thing. But as a kind of like, I don't know, jumping off point for policy, there's basically three things people talk about a lot. You've got the carbon tax, sometimes called a tax and dividend, Mm -hmm. where you basically charge people a certain amount of dollars for every ton of carbon that they produce or put in the atmosphere. You've got this thing called cap and trade. Uh, where you basically cap the amount of emissions and then you create this tradable market where people can trade emissions, allowances, and that sort of thing. And then you've got this thing called date and level where you say, uh, you know, by 2030, uh, 80% of, of uh, energy needs to be from renewable sources or whatever. And realistically, every single one of these things relies overwhelmingly on the market. The mechanism involved in each is basically financial incentives for companies. The carbon tax, the incentive is, hey, if you will switch to renewables, you won't have to pay this tax. Isn't that nice? The carbon, uh, the cap and trade is the same thing. Hey, if you'd switch to non-renewables, you won't have to go out and trade for emissions certificates. Mm -hmm. That's nice. Um, and then in the date and level, it's the same thing where, well, if you don't hit the, uh, target of say 80% renewable energy by 2030, you're going to have to pay these massive fines. Don't you want to avoid paying these fines? Yeah. Okay. Well then you should switch to renewables. Mm -hmm. So in each case, it's like a financial penalty is being applied to people who don't switch to renewables on the hope that it will push people to switch to renewables. And when people switch to renewables, the hope is that private capital will come in and build up a bunch of renewable energy capacity in the form of solar farms and wind farms and that sort of thing in order to meet the new demand, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's like, it's all markets. Everything going on here is markets underneath it. Like, of course, because that's how our economy is organized. Um, But people are trying to figure out which of these things is the real socialism one that doesn't involve markets and you just get crazy, insane arguments that don't make any sense. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's worth noting, like how silly the discourse is on this. The the date and level one where you basically say by 2030, 80% of uh, energy has to be from renewable sources or whatever like that. That is the one that is most obscures the fact that it's just basically a carbon tax and yeah. uses financial penalties and hopes to incent private investment in renewables and blah, 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 blah. It's the best at completely obfuscating what the actual like uh, mechanisms are of how it creates change. And so that seems to be the one that, so, that you can kind of trick sort of mm. socialist identified people into, into going that's the socialism one don't right. you know um and so it's it's but it's a bizarre setup i guess to sort of sit here and like you know constantly have people try to figure out of which market-based mechanism uh is the actual deep deep socialism one um right it's very bizarre to me, I look at them like, well, they're all market-based. They all basically operate through the same mechanism. One of the cool things about carbon tax and dividend is that there's this dividend aspect that also redistributes income. That's pretty cool. The other ones don't involve, don't have anything like that going for it. Um, but that one is much more upfront about the fact that it's using market mechanisms, whereas the uh, date and level one obscures that it's using market mechanisms and so uh, is, is capable of, p- of pulling off a few, uh, I don't know, less thoughtful people um, and, and tricking them into, into thinking, this doesn't have markets. 
Um, so yeah, I just thought I would note that, you know, it's important as we move forward to, to recognize the symmetry between basically all of these proposals and, and, and try to pick one based on sort of the merits of them uh, in reducing emissions and serving other social purposes and not based on complete, like, uh, bizarre arguments uh, trying to figure out which uh, scheme is the socialist scheme to do uh, climate change, which is basically a category error and is nonsensical. So there you go. There you go. I don't mean to rant, but you know, sometimes the, sometimes the listeners, they like the rants. Sometimes the listeners lean into the rants. You know, I got to feed my, I got to feed my listeners. You still, uh, you still going in all that geo geoengineering shit that, uh, Hell yeah. Yeah, you're still all about that? Carbon-eating nanobots, the big carbon-eating machine? Well, we do stuff like it. Um, in the Swiss Alps, they're putting big-ass, like, white tarps over Don't the mountains. Don't you Switzerland yet? Yeah, yeah, but... Unrelated. They're basically like, man, we don't want all this snow to melt from our mountains. Yeah. And so they put these big-ass white tarps on them, <clears throat> and that, like, reflects the sun out into the, you know back out into space and also kind of insulates the mountain. Yeah. That's geoengineering right there. There you go. Big white blanket. Yeah. That's all you need. You could put a big one over the Arctic. Just have to be really big. Yeah, well, you know. Or maybe you could put several small ones. That's true, yeah. You'd probably want multiple ones that you could kind of stitch and replace and whatnot. And you could uh, write something on it uh, for aliens to see. Like, Hi. Yeah, you could put a QR code. They probably use QR codes to communicate. Yeah, yeah, like the big scanner app. They would just the big scanning line would just come down over the Earth one day and be like beep, and then the QR code would say like get twenty five percent off your next Grubhub order. Yep. Uh, promo code Lime Scoot. <laughs> Aliens would be like, "What the hell is mm, this?" That's what we do. This culture is totally inscrutable to us. <laughs> <laughs> it's totally inscrutable to me too, guys. I don't get it. I don't get it. on that mic okay uh and so uh then the other issue that, that was at hand uh was tensions and competition policy goals okay this, you you sent this email to me with these words strung together in a way that uh is incomprehensible to me i know what they all mean individually uh but uh break it down for me here an underappreciated tension exists within the new crop of competition policy advocates what yeah what does that mean so liz made the mistake of 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 having me plan the podcast i did i did um, i've been very busy like i said i was like matt why don't you throw this together and so we just get this weird dry kind of disjointed series of arguments well you know that's just what's going on in my brain you know I, no that's absolutely what's going on in your brain all the time it's just like little little oiled gears turning there's nothing yeah. uh fleshly or colorful going on there's there. a ton of little troll args that also i come up with and like i don't even present like 90 percent of them that's the funny mm, thing thank god if i actually like sat down <laughs> and was like every time i thought of an argument that would like infuriate people but would like broadly be successful and like people would struggle to know what to do with it i mean i could publish probably two or three of those a week and it would just completely you know everyone would just hate hate me oh, um more than they own. do already um, anyways, I was reading this piece this week, an excellent piece in the Washington Monthly called The Case for Small Business Collusion. 
And the author of the piece is a gentleman by the name of Philip Longman. Yeah. He works for the Open Market Institute, it seems now, um, though he's been he's been on this subject for many years, even before the Open Markets Institute existed. So, and it's an interesting piece because the 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 subject of the piece is a little bit confusing. Um, the title, I should say, "Small Business Collusion," because I would say ninety percent of the piece is not really about small businesses. It's about independent contractors. In the United States, if you're a worker, you usually fall into one of two categories. And this is actually true in a lot of countries. It's not a uniquely U.S. thing. You're either an employee who works for a specific employer, and that carries with it all sorts of obligations to pay Social Security taxes, and you get employment protections. And there's a lot of things that go along with being an employee. And then you have this other thing called an independent contractor where you're not an employee and you're, and you're kind of, for, for, for legal reasons, sort of conceived of as, as running your own business that you're then kind of being hired out for. So like a plumber is a good example. A plumber, you know, they work for a bunch of different, you know, homeowners or something who all hire them for a job. But we understand them to be independent contractors, not to be employees of each home owner whose pipes they fix and it's weird then to kind of lean into the idea that independent contractors are small collu- or small business small businesses because the normal argument is to say they're not small businesses and we need to tr- be treating them more like employees and blah 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 but putting that aside which is more of an aesthetic objection what i thought was interesting about longman's piece is that it illuminates attention among people who are really interested in increasing competition, breaking up the monopolies, et cetera, et cetera. Like there's a kind of a grouping of people for whom that's a very, very important thing, the most important thing, and sometimes they go as far as to say it is the key to everything, that once you do that, basically all the other problems will be solved. And the tension is this. The advocates of of that position often will come out and say initially, look, I've got this kind of charming sort of um, sideways angle into politics where it's not really left or right in the ordinary sense of the word. What I'm focused on is commercial freedom, the, the liberty of an individual to go into a market and sell something, to start a business and be able to run that business without being crushed by distribution chains that are, you know, controlled by big companies or by big competitors or whatever, right? Is a sort of freedom to access the market, freedom to go in and sell what you want, to work what you want, et cetera, et cetera, freedom uh, uh, from not being dominated by these large companies, et cetera, et cetera. It's very much the, the, the freedom of the lone sole proprietor to go out and do stuff. And that is a very interesting kind of compelling and truly unique view on things. That is like left, right is a little bit, it kind of does, you know, go beyond conventional left, right stuff. The problem is that 
that sometimes that that principle sometimes runs up against other progressive goals such as you know equality and and things like that and what i think is in, so interesting about longman's piece is he perhaps unknowingly there it uh, is oh lordy there's the jackhammer oh lordy i guess well i'll, I'll pause here for a second all right the jackhammering is over though it is also now the next morning um so very interesting uh, podcast here spanning multiple days with sleep in the middle um but to get back to it uh philip longman's piece uh what he notes is basically that look these rules we have against people colluding these rules we have that make it to the essentially pro-competitive rules uh, that they actually hurt people on the low end of the labor market because if you are an organist or you know an artist or something like that these rules often prevent you from creating guilds or other kinds of organizational forms that would allow you to bid up your wages to improve your conditions and that sort of thing and the reason these rules do this is because under our current law independent contractors are not workers and so they don't have the right to unionize and that sort of thing um and i find it a very fascinating kind of uh, problem here because what he's really recognizing is that increasing competition and opening markets and promoting commercial freedom in a general sense um, actually uh, can do really harmful things uh, insofar as it prevents certain kinds of people from cooperating and organizing with one another. And so the question then becomes, well, what do you do about that? And obviously the, Im the implicit argument in Longman's piece is you just disregard the need for open competition and open markets and that sort of thing when it comes to people who we want to collude. That's why the uh, title of the piece is The Case for Small Business Collusion. But that then says implicitly that the values that were supposed to be so unique to this movement, which is not a left-right movement, but is instead a populist movement about commercial freedom, that those values actually give way. That when you go to someone and you say, hey, look, commercial freedom is actually hurting uh, the little man. Commercial freedom would say that you've got to get rid of unions. Commercial freedom would say you have to get rid of producer co-ops. Uh, commercial freedom, uh, you know, I mean, you could go on and on. It's going to have all these negative effects. It's going to say we need to get rid of occupational licensing, which, you know, arguably drives up the incomes of certain, you know, low-income uh, occupational categories. We'd have to get rid of all of these things. And in fact, what you'll notice is a lot of, uh, you know, sort of right-wingers are very much into commercial freedom when it comes to uh, things that would basically clear out the power of small producers and, and working class people. And the response is, is when you present them with essentially the argument that commercial freedom can promote inequality, it can promote power imbalances, when you present them with that, they basically say, oh, well, get rid of commercial freedom. <laughs> I mean, they don't say get rid of it in like an overarching sense, but they, they basically give way. They, they implicitly uh, um, say that they prioritize equality over commercial freedom. 
And I think that's a very interesting move from a kind of philosophical and ideological perspective because that is essentially my move, right? And in some ways, the thing that I find, I I initially found kind of um, off-putting about this sort of commercial freedom focus, uh, which is that my goal is not really to promote some kind of abstract pure market where anyone can go to the market and sell their goods and that sort of thing. What I'm trying to achieve is a kind of fair uh, distribution of income and wealth and power uh, so that people can live good lives, they can have a lot of free time to spend with their families and that sort of thing. And, you know, in some cases, quote unquote, commercial freedom promotes that. In some cases, it doesn't. And in that sense, you basically take or leave different commercial freedom proposals depending on how much they promote equality or not. And so in some ways, like obviously it's a, it's a good article because it, it, it promotes that sort of egalitarian outlook, but I'm not sure that it ever fully, um, it ever fully internalizes that outlook and says that, well, wait a minute, Um, all of this stuff where we're saying the freedom of the proprietor and all that kind of stuff, that that stuff really is secondary to a broader left egalitarian agenda and that these tools are are really not good in in and of themselves but are only good instrumentally insofar as they promote equality and, you know, uh, equality of power and income and that sort of thing. Um, So, yeah, the, the other aspect of this that I think is an interesting tension is it's not just that um, a lot of sort of competition folks have been very emphatic about the uniqueness of their commercial freedom, commercial liberty emphasis, but it's also that they have uh, often been very dismissive of what they have called the command and control left. And that phrase, the command and control left, has often been used to refer to folks like Kenneth Galbraith, who in the middle of the last century would say things like, look, uh, what we want to do is we want to build up a lot of different power structures. Yeah, we, we have big companies and those big companies are, are fairly productive and efficient. And so what we need to do is we can balance them with big unions and big government and we can have all these sort of countervailing institutions that, that help maintain an equal society and that sort of thing. And, and they've been very negative about this because, because it kind of doubles down on, um, on, 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 on bigness and because it doubles down on the idea that, uh, well, we can just continue to restrain trade. Let's just put more commands and more controls on the economy. Um, th- th- there was sort of a, a resistance to that. But like the upshot of Phil Longman's argument, the case for small business collusion is really the case for the command and control left. Right. The, the upshot of the piece is we should allow small businesses and workers and independent contractors, we should allow them to form their own large organizations where they can exert market power and use that to fight against, you know, the big guys, the big corporations, capital, whatever you want to call it. And that's the Galbraith vision. So in, in a way, we've sort of gone full circle from uh, arguing that the goal should be commercial freedom, not command and control, and, and, and then coming back around and saying, oh, no, actually, command and control can be useful at times. And of course, the, the, meta, the meta theory that uh, can bring all of this together is the meta theory of egalitarianism. In that theory, you say, look, what I'm trying to do is promote equality not liberty, not commercial freedom, not command and control for its own sake, but equality of income, wealth, power, etc. 
what I'm trying to do is promote equality and sometimes a kind of commercial freedom break up the monopolies helps do that. Other times a command and control give more power, more organization, more coordination, more collusion. Other times that approach promotes equality. And so really, instead of uh, valuing commercial freedom in and of itself, valuing bigness and control in and of itself, what we got to do is pick and choose when to apply commercial freedom or command and control, uh, depending on the circumstances, while always looking towards uh, which uh, approach promotes equality in a given case. So it's kind of a deep dive and maybe it's sort of irrelevant ultimately, uh, but I always find these sort of philosophical disputes very interesting, especially when you have a kind of relatively new entry into the market who is selling a, a new philosophical principle, a new value system that departs from the normal left and right um, to see, does that really hold together? Are they willing to actually take that value principle um, to conclusions, to anti-left conclusions, or to conclusions that we we might say would uh, uh, would uh, be frowned upon by progressives and people who have progressive values? Um, and, and what you're finding, I think, in Philip Longman's piece is that, in fact, they are not willing to take the idea of a free proprietor and everyone can go to the market and sell what they want when they want, that they're not willing to take that, if, I, if you might say, libertarian uh, conclusion all the way to its natural conclusion, but instead, as soon as that um, value principle runs up against um, leftist thought and progressive values, they go, wait a minute, maybe collusion is good. Um, and so, you know, just consider that, consider that. Anyways, um, as you might have noticed at this point, uh, Liz has, uh, sort of dropped out of the, uh, podcast, not in a, in a permanent sense, but as I noted, we had to cancel the podcast in the middle of last night because of, uh, massive jackhammering outside. So I'm kind of finishing it up solo. I feel like we had a lot of good, uh, you know, uh, banter at first. So you probably get your good spiel, your good, your good, uh, your good uh, uh, mix of, of Liz content. Um, so let me see. Let's let's look at an ad, and then I'll try to finish it out. We're at minute fifty here. I try to give a a solid sixty minutes of content, you know, so people can can fill up you know, an hour of, of their hell life. Um, maybe you don't have a hell life, but, uh, but I certainly do at times. Uh, let's look at an ad. Are you tired of society's constant pressure to express only those beliefs you genuinely hold in an honest and forthright manner? If so, consider joining The Discourse. Here at The Discourse, you're free to spout off any bad faith take about whatever the issue of the day is, regardless of whether or not you know anything about it or even care about the ultimate outcome. Whether on Twitter, at a catered think tank luncheon, or on cable news, joining The Discourse lets you advance whatever agenda seems expedient for fund and or profit. So join The Discourse today, because incipient nihilism has already murdered all notions of reasoned debate, mutual respect, and common purpose, and there's no reason why you shouldn't loot whatever you can from their corpses. Thanks to James Bixby, Patreon subscriber, for that one. One of my favorite ads, I would say, so far. All right, so one more thing. Try to get it in 10 minutes. I guess we're now at nine minutes left. 
Um, this week, our old friend, Mr. Glenn Kessler of The Fact Checker, had a piece that I wrote about at People's Policy Project. And if you are new to the podcast, you might have recognized, um, you might not be aware of the fact that uh, I've had a kind of long-running feud with Mr. Kessler over his fact checks of Medicare for All. Those fact checks have been consistently incorrect. Um, They have also been contradictory over time, like he's done multiple of them and like different fact checks say different things about what is actually true and what isn't true. Um, and just in general been very sloppy and like not good. Um, and he uh, has dipped his toe again into the healthcare space. This time, what he did was he wrote a piece about certain claims Democratic candidates are making about things Republicans have done to make it harder for people with pre-existing conditions to get health insurance. And... What these Democratic politicians have been doing, basically, is they have been pointing out that their Republican opponents have in the past either supported repealing Obamacare or supported passing Trump's tax plan, the AHCA, which never did get passed but got a lot of Republican votes. They've been pointing that out, and then they've been saying, hey, these laws supported by my opponent would have put people with pre-existing conditions at risk. And then what they'll do is they'll say, and in my state, say Pennsylvania, there are, let's say, 5 million people with pre-existing conditions, right? To kind of bring home the number of people that were, you know, put at risk by the Republicans, uh, their, their opponents' voting history. And Glenn, Glenn decided to uh, give these claims four Pinocchios, Um, using some of the most uh, bizarre reasoning I have ever seen in a a fact check. Um, And there basically are two issues that Glenn uh, has with these sorts of claims. The first issue is that when someone is saying, for instance, uh, there are 5 million people with pre-existing conditions in Pennsylvania, the place that they got that 5 million number was a totally credible estimate put out by the Center for American Progress. The Center for a Cap put out these estimates a few months ago, I think, and so they've been using those in their in their campaigning. And Glenn doesn't say that the Cap estimates are wrong, that they're not credible. He has no methodological objection to how they come up with them. He just says, you know, there are other estimates as well. Did you know Kaiser once put out an estimate? Did you once did you know uh, this and that organization once put out an estimate? And so the objection is just, is just what exactly? It's, it's something like, uh, well, you cited one credible estimate without citing all of them simultaneously. Uh, and that, that seems like a rather uh, ridiculous bar for accusing someone of lying. Uh, is, I mean, is it really the case that uh, candidates need to, in their speeches to normal people, they need to cite dozens of different estimates? Is that really the case? It seems like pretty fair to me to uh, cite one credible estimate and move on. Um, but that's apparently Glenn's, Glenn's view. You get two Pinocchios just for that, if you kind of run through the logic of his piece. You get two, two Pinocchios just for citing one credible estimate of the number of people with pre-existing conditions without citing all of the estimates simultaneously. And then the second issue that Glenn uh, uh, picks up on is he says, wait a minute. 
Some of these Republicans, their only crime, such as it is, was voting for the Trump health plan called the AHCA. And the Trump health plan, uh, it only was going to strip out protections for pre-existing conditions for people who used the individual exchange market. So if you're, you know, not to go too deep into the healthcare setup, but people basically get healthcare from one of four places. They get it from their job, they get it from Medicaid, they get it from Medicare, or they get it from an individual health market where they go on to the Obamacare websites and they get the subsidies and all that stuff. And the AHCA was going to strip out protections for pre-existing conditions for people who were getting insurance from the individual markets. And so Glenn reasoned that it was wrong for you to say, hey, this put at risk 5 million people in my state because 5 million people referred to the total number of people with pre-existing conditions in your state, but only a small fraction of the population is actually on the individual exchanges. Right. So if you imagine like, well, only 10 percent of people get their health insurance from the individual exchanges. Therefore, what you really should do is you should take 10 percent of five million and get five hundred thousand. And then you use that number. That is sort of the upshot of his of his analysis. And therefore, you get another two Pinocchios for for a combined total of four for not doing that transformation for for citing the total number of people with pre-existing conditions instead of the number of people with pre-existing conditions who currently receive insurance from the individual health exchanges. Now, the problem with Glenn's move on this is people, their health insurance situation changes all the time, right? So I might be in employer-provided care right now, and oh, I'm having a good time. It's like going okay. They're not discriminating against me based on my pre-existing condition. But in an instant, as I have personally learned, in a moment, in a blink of the eye, you can get pushed off your employer insurance and have to go on to the individual exchanges. And so it is wrong to say the only people who are put at risk by stripping out protections for pre-existing conditions in the individual exchange markets are those who are currently in those markets because anyone could find themselves in those markets. You might be on Medicaid right now, but your income might improve in the future and you have to get on the markets. You might be in employer-provided care right now, but your income might, uh, or rather, but you might lose your job and have to get on the markets. So it is, in fact, actually accurate to say everyone with pre-existing conditions are put at risk when the individual market is allowed to discriminate against people with pre-existing conditions. And so Glenn is just off. He's just conceptually off, right? It's not like a mathematical thing. It's just a sort of conceptual problem he has understanding that people, they're not in the same insurance all the time. They switch all the time. They move between different markets. And so, in fact, uh, uh, limiting protections in one market hurts everyone. Um, and so think about this for a second, right? Not only is, is, if you put it together, people get four Pinocchios because they cite one credible estimate rather than dozens simultaneously, and because they say everyone is put at risk when you strip out protections from one market because everyone might find themselves in that market at some point in the future. He takes those judgment calls he has on those points Right? Whether you agree with them or not, you, can, you should at least be able to acknowledge these are not factual. This is not like he found a factual mistake. These are very, very, very subjective and I would say quite tenuous judgment calls he's making. He's taking those 
and using them to accuse people of lying, giving them four out of four Pinocchios, which then goes into the discourse. Their opponents cite the Washington Post's Glenn Kessler to say that they're lying when they are not. And to me, it's just amazing in sort of this you know, world of, of people being worried about fake news and, and, and information populating and filtering out into the social media where people don't have the ability to judge whether it's true or not, that someone could put out something that is so <laughs> non-factual, so sort of subjective in its orientation, and, 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 and in which he calls people liars who are in active campaigns, which then Theori- theoretically affects the outcomes of those of those campaigns. It's just it's just utterly baffling to me um, that that this sort of goes on. And and what's uh, additionally weird is not just okay he's making the wrong judgment calls, which although I think it's obvious he is, but in this piece, like many of his other pieces, he had some things that were just clearly factually wrong. And you know they are factually wrong because he edited the piece after it was published to say, "Whoops, my bad. I shouldn't have said this." He deleted whole paragraphs, moved them around, etc. So, again, it's like we're in this stage where we are. There's a sort of hysteria about incorrect information populating, streaming through the social media uh, environment, and affecting people. And you have someone publishing pieces in which he calls active candidates liars that he then has to very quickly change and fix because he got lots of things in it wrong, things that he admits he got wrong. Putting aside the things he got wrong that he won't admit, the things he, he even admitted that he got wrong and had to change it. And if, if anyone has ever known anything about how traffic works, probably 90% of the people who read that piece, they never saw the corrections. So you're putting fake information out there without checking it, obviously well enough, people see it, their minds are changed, then you go back in and you edit it, which nobody sees, and you know that's sort of the state of our discourse. That's the informational environment in which people are making decisions, and it's just, it's just crazy to me. Um, and so, you know, I don't know. I don't know what, what can be done about this. Um, in general, I kind of feel like fact-checking is uh, jump the shark as an institution um, because they don't just stick to straightforward debunking of facts, but instead use extremely subjective judgment calls that are in a lot of cases clearly wrong and obviously invite uh, their own biases into the picture. Um, I, you know, I, I kind of think that the whole enterprise should probably be killed at this point. Um, but insofar as it is, and I, it, it's, it's a sort of an interesting sort of cancerous problem. It, 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 it is the fake news problem, but it is a fake news problem that, uh, um, uh, proliferates through, uh, established media brands that, um, you know, y- y- you, could never like, like if the, if Twitter started blocking Glenn Kessler's articles, people would f- find that strange, but like. Uh, in what sense are those articles any less factual than than some of the sort of you know you know Macedonian uh, fake websites, right? I mean, content-wise, they both have incorrect claims made on them that are calibrated to affect um, uh, election outcomes. Um, so, you know, just something to think about. Um, it's a very it's a very frustrating um, thing. I mean, I, I get candidates who contact me rather frequently and they're like, uh, you know. 
this thing that Glenn said uh, about Medicare for All. We know it's not true. We've done the math ourselves. Uh, but the local media, they don't know. They don't have the capacity to like go through these reports. And so they're just kind of relying on what he says. And you're just like, I don't know what to tell you. It's a bizarre situation where you have a, a, a sort of rogue man <laughs> who is, who's publishing incorrect things and affecting elections. And, and there's no obvious way to to sort of counteract that. There's no editorial thing that you can go to apparently and get the things removed. It, it just it's just there. It's just fake news there forever under the name of a of a brand that is that is very difficult to accuse of just just being unreliable. So it's frustrating. It's frustrating. Um, all right. So it's now I guess 103 or 104. So I won't keep you any longer. Um, thanks for listening. Sorry. Uh, Liz had, uh, you know, we had a, the technical issue and not a technical issue, just the jackhammering. But Liz will be back next week. I think I think we're going to have the guest next week. We'll see. Um, and keep on listening. Keep on keep on trucking. Keep on, you know, fucking that chicken, as they say. Uh, bye bye. <laughs>